Amen. Go ahead and be seated, please, and take your Bibles, and let's go to James chapter 5. We finally arrived at the final chapter to the book of James. I had no idea how long this would really take us to get here, but 13 weeks into it, we have now arrived to the last chapter. I have no true idea if this is going to be a two weeks or three weeks or four weeks, but we'll figure it out as we go. This morning, uh, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 6 of chapter 5. You should have noticed that the tone at the end of chapter 4 carries over into James's rebuke that he has here at the beginning of chapter 5. So with that in mind, let's begin with verse number 1. He says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. James displays outrage against the rich because ultimately of their wicked acts that they're doing against the poor. Notice how he dresses them as rich rather than my brothers. So whatever appearance these people had that suggested Christian faith, their actions were so worldly, they were so destructive, that the truth about them could only produce from James some righteous indignation towards them. Like Paul and like John, James was willing to speak to believers as though they were non-believers. And this is what James is doing here. Because their actions towards others were a contradiction of their profession of faith, and so he wants to address that in, in, in an effort and hopes of trying to correct that. And so the verses that follow will lay out the crimes or the charges against these individuals, and the truth about greed and the selfish hoarding of wealth is what's presented next in verses 2 and 3. Look what he says. He says, your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasures in the last days. You understand that the agrarian ancient world had three standard sources of wealth. Those three standard sources would have been harvested grain, clothing, and then uh, precious stones or, or, or metals. And so James rightly points out that the hoarding of these things were, would ruin all three of them. In fact, their great stock of grain that they have stored up for themselves has ultimately soured and, and become rotten in their futile attempts to try to preserve it for themselves. Their clothing, which would have been so important for them as it relates to their status symbol, uh, the, the clothing that they wore, and their maintenance of a, of a certain prestige. He says that their clothing are ruined in storage. They've, they've become moth-eaten. They're, they're, they're utterly worthless. And then he points out about their gold and their silver. Gold and silver then, as it is today, are most sought-after metals. Uh, They've long been considered the material standards uh, for the world. And so although they do not rust, 
they can become corroded. Gold can darken and silver can tarnish. And their corrosion is a testimony against them and their folly of thinking that they can store up treasures for themselves and that those treasures that they build up for themselves would last for however long they desired or they think is appropriate. I want you to understand as we unpack these six verses that that James never once says that it is a sin uh, to be rich or to have possessions. After all, Abraham was a wealthy man, yet he walked with God, and he was greatly used by God to be a blessing to the world. So what James is trying to address and what he's trying to attack is the selfishness that often comes when you possess a whole lot of wealth. See, in and of itself, money's not sinful. Money's not holy. Money's not evil. Money is neutral. And what is done with it determines whether or not it is sinful or righteous. And so, money's not evil in and of itself. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse number 10, tells us, but the love of money is the root of all evil. Not, not, the, not money. Money's not the, the root of evil. It's the love of it. And so look at it this way. Abraham was a very rich and, and wealthy individual, but he maintained his faith and his character. And then we think about Lot in the Old Testament. Lot, when he became rich, well, he didn't maintain faith or character. And ultimately, uh, his wealth ruined his character and ruined his whole family. And so, let me be clear. It is good uh, to have riches in your hand provided that those riches don't go from your hand into your heart. Scripture tells us in in Psalm chapter 62, verse number 10, if riches increase, set not your heart upon them. And this happens all the time. Let me just go here real quick. So many times we're praying for um, uh, material windfall, maybe um, a raise in, in our employment to get some more money to... To, to meet whatever needs that we have. Or, or sometimes we might think, hey, if we just had a little bit more, then we could give a, a little bit more. And that's a great thought. But what often happens is when we receive more, when we get more to our, our standard of, of living, or we get an increase in salary, that often doesn't go to an increase in standard of giving we usually raise our standard of living to meet the income that we, we're now at. Instead of seeing it as a blessing that God has provided with me more, and how does he want me to use this to be a blessing to other people, we often think, well, it must be all about me, so now I'm going to step up and move into a larger home or buy additional items or whatever. And we fail to see the blessings that we have are, are given to us so that we can, in part, be a blessing to other people. And James is just trying to unpack this with the people, the believers, and he's saying, look, you're hoarding all of these things and you're storing everything up for yourselves and you need to realize that it's not just about you. It's about others and how we treat others and how we deal with others. Proverbs chapter 22, verse number 1 says, A good name is rather to be chosen than riches and loving favor rather than silver and gold. The Bible does not discourage the acquisition of wealth. 
Nowhere in the epistles uh, does it contradict a, a person's right to uh, private ownership or, or, or profit. But what the Bible does condemn is acquiring wealth by illegal means or for unworthy purposes. The prophet Amos, he, he had a thunderous message for the people and he would attack the wealthy those that robbed the poor, those that used the, the stolen wealth that they had for their luxurious lifestyle. And not only Amos, but then you see Isaiah and, and Jeremiah. They too exposed the selfishness of the rich and warned that judgment was coming. And I think it's in light of, of those prophets. And I think it's with that same spirit that, that James is writing. And, and he's given a, a warning. And, and then he gives us insight as to how these individuals whom he's attacking and addressing, how they acquired the wealth that they had. Because look at verse number 4. He says, Behold, the wages of the laborers who, who mowed your field which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. And so they, they, they got their wealth because they've cheated people out of what they were due. They're, they're guilty of withholding wages from their laborers. And you understand the laborers were, were hired and paid on a day-to-day -day basis. They didn't have legal pending contracts of service for multiple years or anything like that. In fact, if you want to get a better understanding on how it worked with the day laborer in biblical times, then you can read the, the parable of the laborers in Matthew chapter 20, and it'll give you a better insight into how the system of that day worked. Ultimately, in the law that God gave the people, God gave specific instructions and in concerning the laborers. He gave specific instructions to give protection to those that worked day by day, who lived day by day, and ultimately uh, hand to mouth. Because He gave protection so that they wouldn't be taken advantage of by those that hired them. And you see different things in, in, in the law. A couple of these on, on the screen. In Deuteronomy chapter 24, it says, You shall not oppress a hired worker who is poor and needy, whether he is one of your brothers or one of the sojourners who are in the land within your towns. You shall give him his wages on the same day before the sun sets, for he is poor and counts on it, lest he cry against you to the Lord and you be guilty of sin. This is exactly what's happening with the people that James is addressing. And then all, you'll see in Leviticus chapter 19, verse number 13, it says, You shall not oppress your neighbors or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. These wealthy individuals hired people and promised to pay them a specific amount. And then when the work was completed, the individuals didn't get the money that they were promised. In fact, the phrase that's used in James, it says kept back. In Greek, it carries with it even more insights. Not only had they not been paid, they could expect never to be paid for those services. 
and, and these rich individuals would certainly not have been hurt by paying the wages. They had plenty from which to pay from. But notice that the laborers, how they're suffering. They're living day to day, hand to mouth. They get hired for service. They go out and work all day long so that they can bring enough money home to, to provide enough food for the family only to not be paid and then ultimately not have the means to provide for their own family. So it's bad enough when we gain our wealth in a sinful matter, but then when we turn around and we use that wealth in sinful ways, it just adds to it even more. Notice what James says back in verse number 3. He says, your gold and your silver have corroded. Their corrosion will be evidenced against you. Lead your flesh like fire. Then it says, you have laid up treasures in the last days. So ultimately, these individuals are guilty of, of storing up their treasures. i got to be clear because I don't want you to misunderstand me. There's nothing wrong, there's nothing sinful about saving money. There's not. You find places like in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse number 8, it says, but if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So, so there's nothing wrong with, with having savings. There, there, there's nothing wrong with having a plan to, to put away some savings so that you can have provisions in place for, for family and for loved ones. But what is wrong is when we begin to store up and save our wealth when we owe money to our employees. That, that's what's wrong. These individuals, they were hoarding grain. They were hoarding garments. They were hoarding gold. And they thought they were rich because they had these possessions. But they weren't rich. They were thieves. They, they were building up their wealth at the expense of those that they hired. And it's like you're supposed to give the people what they earned and what they deserve. That's what your money goes towards. And then if there's blessings upon that, then there's a store, a, a saving plan that can happen. But we're not to, to store and to save up for ourselves at the expense of other people. I hope you can understand that. And an interesting side note here, it's not but about 10 years after James writes this letter that Jerusalem fell to the Romans. So all the accumulated wealth that he's talking about would ultimately be taken from the people within a matter of 10 years. So they're guilty of, of storing up their treasures for themselves and cheating people out of what they deserve. And then also they're guilty of luxury and self-indulgence. I want you to see, look at verse 5. It says that you have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. May you understand that there is a great difference between enjoying what God has given you and then living extravagantly on what you have withheld from other people. 
I want you to listen to the advice that Paul gave to Timothy. He gives us advice in 1 Timothy chapter 6. He says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, the storing up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. So, so God's, His Word's saying like it, it's good. They're to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous, to be ready to, to share. So even if what we have, we have earned honestly and in light with the will of God, it's not just how we receive what we have, it's also what we do with what we have that matters. So we must honor God in how we earn it, and we must honor God in how we use the blessings that He gives us in life. And so, thankfully, James describes uh, the consequences of misusing riches. He's, he says back in verse number 5, that you have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. James has a devastating word for the self-indulgence. He said that they have fattened themselves up for God's judgment. The illustration is making a connection as as calves eat and eat without realizing that they're fattening themselves up for the day of slaughter, so too are the arrogant wealthy who gorge themselves without realizing that they are fattening themselves up for a day of judgment. And James not only saw a present judgment, that their wealth was decaying, and that their character was eroding, but he also speaking about a future judgment before God. We'll see uh, next week, we'll see in verse number 9, that Jesus Christ will be that judge. And His judgment will be just and righteous. Take a look real quick, if you would, at the witnesses that, that will appear before God on the day of judgment. Back in verse 3, it says that your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you. So their rotten grain, their rusted gold and, and silver, their moth-eaten garments will bear witness to the selfishness of their hearts. The wages that they withheld from those that they should have paid will testify against them before the Lord. Which means ultimately that our money talks and will be used and will speak. So not only is our wealth a witness against us, also workers will testify against them. Back in verse 4 it says, Behold the wages of the laborer who mowed your fields, which you have kept back from fraud. They're crying out against you. May we all understand that God hears the cry of the oppressed people. 
And God will judge righteously. Sometimes we get frustrated because we don't see his judgment now. But may you know that justice delayed is not the same as justice denied. One thing, one day our Lord will make all things right. I think that's kind of helping to lay the groundwork and the understanding of the next section that we're going to go into because the next section starts off with be patient. Be patient. God will make all things right in His timing. He's talking about a judgment here and this judgment is a serious thing. I don't think we like to talk about judgment a lot. But every single person will stand before God in judgment. And there are two types of judgment. There's a judgment that will happen for the non-believers, and then there's a judgment that will happen for those who believe. And now these verses aren't going to be on the screen because I want you to see them in your actual Bible. So do, do me a favor, turn to the book of Revelation, last book of the Bible. Let's go to Revelation chapter 20. I'm not going to really expand on this too much. But I just want you to see that the two judgments that, that are going to occur. So the lost will one day ultimately stand before Jesus at the great white throne judgment. And here we find it in Revelation chapter 20, beginning in verse number 11, it says, Then I saw a great white throne and Him who was seated on it. From His presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were open. Now, now these books that were open, they, they, these are a record of, of all of our thoughts, of all of our words, of, of all of our actions. These books will pro provide the evidence for eternal condemnation so keep this in mind he said there's these books that were open and then another book opened which is the book of life and the book of life has recorded all the names of of the redeemed all the names of of god's precious children so there's these books right so we have the book of life and the dead were judged by what was written in the books the first set of books the dead were judged by by what was the record of their thoughts, their words, their deeds? It says, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So all non-believers will stand before the great white throne of Jesus. The books will be open, revealing all the details of their life. When you look at all the details of their life, and then the name will be searched in the book of life, and the name's not there. So their end is a second death eternal separation from a holy and righteous God. Unless you think, oh good, I'm glad I escaped that kind of judgment. 
we who believe also face judgment as well. I want to show you in Scripture, so turn with me now. Go back to your left a little bit. Go to Romans chapter 14. Romans chapter 14. Those who believe will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. In Romans chapter 14, beginning in verse number 10, it says, Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. Let me show you one more place too. Go with me to the right. Go go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Stay with me. Just a few pages. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I want to get the whole thought here that begins, well, it begins at the beginning of the chapter, but I'll start in verse number 6. It says, So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage. And we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Just pause right there. I wonder if that's true for you. Would you rather be away from your body now and present with the Lord? Because if you don't, and you'd rather be here and not there, then you don't have a full understanding of the there and the here. So anyway, he says, yes, we are of good courage, and we'd rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we will make it our aim to please him. Verse 10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So we're all going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and we're going to either receive a reward based upon the good that we did or we're not going to receive a reward based upon the evil a better understanding of that is not, not the sin, that's not what it's talking about, but the useless or the wasteless things that we do. See, God will not judge our sins for those who believe. He already did that at the cross with Jesus. Sins have already been judged, but He will judge our work, our ministry, what we do or fail to do. And if we are faithful in in serving and glorifying the Father, then we will receive a reward. But if we've been unfaithful, we'll lose out on a reward. We won't lose our salvation. That's the judgment that he's talking about. And everybody will, will stand before God in judgment. And James is just trying to lovingly address his brothers and sisters and he sees that you're not grasping it. You have uh, an earthly mentality. 
You think what you have is based upon who you are and what you've done, and it can be used in any way that you want to, but you got to understand that what you have and who you are is based completely upon who He is and what He's given and provided. That's why a brand new message series that we're going to kick in after we finish this study, whenever this wraps up, is understanding our identity in Christ. Because when we begin to understand who we are in Christ, then it helps to shape how we live this life. And some of us are are walking around living a very defeated life because we don't understand our identity in Christ. So hopefully it will be an encouraging message series for us all. But right now, James is addressing brothers and sisters and saying, look, based upon the evidence of what's being shown, I have to speak to you rather harshly because there seems to be a disconnect in you. And so don't misuse, don't don't acquire wealth in, in a wrong manner. And then when you have wealth, don't misuse it with the wrong purposes. So James isn't condemning wealth. He's not condemning rich people. What he's trying to do is condemn the wrong use of wealth and the wrong acquisition of wealth. James is ultimately condemning those who who use their wealth as a, as a weapon rather than as a tool for, for glorifying God and, and making His glory known among the people. So, so my desire in just looking at these six verses is to encourage us to take an honest look and assessment of our lives and that we might have a life filled with gratitude for what God has blessed us with. And for us not to hold on too tightly the blessings of the material world. Not to be closed-fisted with what God has blessed us with, but rather to turn those fists over and open those hands up and then realize that we're to be stewards of what God's blessed us with. So we live our lives with open hands, ready to receive and then ready to give as God should lead each and every one of us. My prayer is that we would all develop a very generous attitude and lifestyle in our lives that we would begin to see the, the needs of our people in the church and the people in our community. And then we would begin to have serious conversations with our Lord and ask Him, Father, what do you want me to do? How do you want me to respond I see this need. I I hear of this struggle. I see what you have given me and blessed me. Is there something that you want from me in order to do or to step in and to help and to offer assistance? That's my desire. My desire for my own life and that's my desire for for the people of this church is that we would be a loving, generous-hearted people that are ready to respond to needs when they uh, become known and ready to love people, to walk alongside them, to pick them up when they're down, to offer them hope and encouragement in the Word of God, and, and to live longingly for the day when God says, your time here is done. Come home, my child. And until He calls us home, we've got a whole lot of work to do in this place. So may God not give us a spirit of ease, but may He give us a spirit of intensity, a desire, a longing to be active and to be engaged in the kingdom work of our Father.
Let's pray, church. Father, thank you for the enormous ways that you have blessed us. God, help us to realize that we've been blessed so that we can be a blessing. And so God, for your faithfulness to us, we give you praise. God, help each and every one of us, starting with me, to live with the acute awareness of, of who I am in you, not to listen to the voice of the adversary, but, but to find my identity and what your word says about me and to me. Again, help me to, to live faithfully and obediently. Help this church to love you, to long to know your word and to apply that word rightly to our lives. May we be patient with each other, encouraging of one another, supporting, assisting. But God, the only way that we can really develop that culture is for us to be honest with each other. So God, help us to, to stop pretending around here. Help us to stop saying I'm good, I'm fine when we're sad and we're hurt or we're broken. Help us to stop acting as though we never sin or never do anything wrong and that we're perfectly righteous in every way. God, just help us to be real and authentic with each other. And in that state of vulnerableness, may it be received with grace and mercy. Father, I thank you for this day and for this church, for the opportunities that you have given us and for whatever lies ahead. May you give us the strength to face the day. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.